passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I came here, guys. This victory, and I said it before, it was much bigger than me. This victory was for the flyaways, but like I told TJ, TJ, we can do it again, and this time we'll do it 135 pounds, man. So, thank you for the opportunity. You're a stud, bro. You're a stud for coming down. I know that wake up was a lot, and I'll give you, I'll give you another shot at 135 pounds. Let's do it again. The path to flyweight gold still goes through the messenger. Ladies and gentlemen, your champion, Henry Cejudo. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our UFC on ESPN Plus post show. I'm John Pollock, joined tonight by Phil Chertok as we are going to be chatting about the UFC diving into the ESPN era. And we were just remarking, Phil. Only six hours of fights tonight. Only. This is relatively early. It flew by like five and a half. <laughs> it, it felt like a solid uh, five and a half put into a, a, a six-hour window. Uh, lots to discuss uh, tonight. I guess coming into this card, what did you think of the promotion? Uh, you know, it's kind of difficult for us because we're in Canada and don't really get the full effect of the ESPN machine. But did you get the sense that this was a pretty big and well-promoted card, uh, and m maybe even just the, the fact that it had m many different angles that you can look at this card from. But overall, the promotion, did this feel big to you? I don't know if it felt big, but it, I would say it was well-promoted in the sense that you knew – everybody knew about it. Everybody knew that this was going to be on ESPN+, Plus, which meant a new way of consuming it. And if you paid any attention to ESPN and their coverage this week, it was certainly the most coverage they've given to an MMA event than I can recall. They had programming all week. Uh, they had shoulder programming with even on fight night. Uh, so I think that from ESPN's perspective, there was a ton of promotion uh, in the event. From the UFC's perspective, it kind of felt like any other UFC event. Going into this show, I, I do have to say that I was kind of curious to see what kind of differences we would see as they're going to a new home. The UFC is still in control of the production, and I would state that if you were a fan that was just simply uh, flipping through, you would have no idea they were on a brand new network tonight. With the exception of Stephen A. Smith popping up every now and then, uh, like this felt like any other UFC broadcast on Fox. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, they were using the exact same graphics for the uh, fighter titles and the in-round overlay. So it, it really was the same stuff. I, I think that there will be changes. I 
but maybe not right away. I think probably early on, they were just concerned with getting the logistics of the event and the cooperation together and the new network. And I think as the relationship continues, we might see more changes for things like that, like graphics. I think the there was more emphasis on the packages between fights uh, than there had been in the past. So that felt a little bit more enhanced. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the only other little things they did add on uh, Trevor Whitman to the broadcast. He was kind of chiming in in between rounds, kind of giving some insight into the corners. You had a little bit more of Megan O'Leary on the show. Very little things. But I would say unless you were watching with a pretty keen eye to things like this just felt as though the UFC was perfectly happy with the way they packaged their events and was transplanting it from one network to the next. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, well, let's get into the card from Saturday night at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. Um, did you get to see the the Fight Pass prelims? Oh, yes, I did. Well, it's it's very confusing for us in Canada. You see, in the U.S., you will start on ESPN Plus for three fights. Then they send you to ESPN proper. Then you go back to ESPN Plus. Here in Canada, we can watch the prelims the the first set of prelims on Fight Pass, then there's more prelims on TSN, and then there's the main card that you can also watch on TSN. Yeah, it's it's, it's very difficult to keep track. It's going to be quite the chore, I think, over the, the course of this uh, contract. But uh, many, many hours ago, Kyle Stewart took on Chance Rencounter in a welterweight bout, and we got off to a, a pretty quick start where... Uh, Rencounter came out, landing a number of left hands, and then got hit low. The fight resumed, and he was able to uh, get Stewart down to the ground and rolled him, secured a rear naked choke, and got the submission at 2 minutes 25 seconds of the first round. And this would be uh, Chance Rencounter's uh, sixth first round finish and his first win inside the UFC. So a very quick start to the card. Yeah, Chance Rencounter dominated this fight. He was able to control the whole uh, match with his wrestling. He seems to be uh, working with a really good team. He's got uh, Phil Davis in his corner, and you could see that uh, wrestling was a big part of his game plan. Uh, But this opponent, Kyle Stewart, this was his first event in the UFC. He took this fight on short notice, so I'm not so sure what a win here means other than uh, we get to see him again uh, a little higher up in the rankings. So then we moved on to our next bout, and that saw Jeff Neal, who I thought was a, had a pretty good performance here against Bilal Muhammad. And Bilal Muhammad is, you know, a guy that's been around the UFC for quite a bit of time. He has wins over the likes of Randy Brown, Jordan Meehan, Tim Means, and Chance run counter. I mean, this guy is just all over this. Uh, so he comes into this fight against Jeff Neal, um, who has won his last two fights. And throughout this fight, I thought the, the big focus was on Jeff Neal and his left hand. The announcers were paying a lot of attention to it. He was so quick with his, his left hand and 
also his great takedown defense. Um, Muhammad, by the middle of the second round, he was 0 for 5 on his takedowns. Uh, Muhammad had his best round in the second. That's when kind of he he, guard, he started getting his striking going. Uh, but then in the third, uh, I thought that Jeff Neal just uh, dominated this third round. He was able to knock him down. He also wobbled him with a head kick. This is a Really great performance from Jeff Neal. He got the unanimous decision victory, two scores of 30-27, and one judge having it 29-28. And I, I would say the third round, it was it was near 10-8 territory for me. I had the third round as a 10-8. Um, right. the, it was a very impressive performance from Neal. He was very accurate with the striking. He was very precise and calm and measured and patient. And at times when he landed big shots on Muhammad, he didn't go in for the kill uh, too aggressively. Uh, in the uh, Muhammad was amazingly uh, he like he he was amazing in his ability to just stay hang into this fight. He's so tough. And in the second round, as you mentioned, he got some striking off. He was really landing to the body, and it looked like it might be affecting Neil. And then in the third round, Neil really turned it up, and that didn't matter uh, at all as he almost finished him. Uh, it was a pretty impressive performance from Neil. I'd really like to see him again in there. Yeah, so Jeff Neal, I thought, yeah, good performance from him. And then Dennis Bermudez, he was coming into this fight against T. Edwards. He had lost four straight. And this kind of was uh, what a rapid change to this fight. Edwards started the fight off, I thought, pretty good, Phil. He was coming out. He was landing a number of of strikes right out of the gate. And it seemed like Bermudez was going to be in for a really rough night. And then midway through the first, he was able to get this fight to the ground and Edwards just shut down. It was like this in the second round where uh, Bermudez just – he knew the takedown was there and then was relentless with his submission attempts. And this continued into the third where he j- was able to work for a guillotine, mounted him, and I-, I thought the third round was definitely a 10-8 for Dennis Bermudez. He ended up getting the unanimous decision, 30-26. And so this snaps a four-fight losing streak for Bermudez, and then he announces – his retirement at the end of this. Uh, this was also Dennis Bermudez's uh, return to the lightweight division. So, uh, yeah, quite a lot to this fight, uh, Phil. And by the end of it, we got a fighter retirement. Yeah, it was. Uh, I agree with your assessment on the fight. I had the third round as ten eight, and I thought Edwards looked sharp early. But once it got into the wrestling, he just it was there was just such a clear difference. He had no answer for. Uh, Bermudez is wrestling. He had no way to really get up in this fight, uh, except for a couple of times. And then he'd be dragged back down immediately. Uh, and he was zapped right away. So, uh, Bermudez really controlled this fight. Uh, he was kind of riding it out a little bit. Like he wasn't going too hard for the submission, but you could understand that, uh, with the way that he ended the, uh, uh, the fight with his post-fight interview and retiring you know he was just he wanted to end with a win and so you can't fault him too much too badly for not going for the finish harder yeah uh, Bermuda's had a 
an interesting career. He came off of The Ultimate Fighter Season 14, which was right at the end of the Spike era. So this guy just sneaking into the ESPN version. Uh, but at one time, he had won seven fights in a row from 2012 to 2014. And then he had this losing skid. And yeah, goes out on a win. And yeah, 32 years of age. That's always an age where I'm kind of curious to see, will this really be this guy's last fight or not? Yeah, he, he had a good career against uh, some tough competition. He had some very close losses, debatable losses. And uh, he was on a run there, almost made it to a title shot. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see him go this way with the victory. And, uh, yeah, good on uh, Dennis. Congratulations to Dennis Bermudez. The next fight was a historical one, Phil, because I'm sure one day back in uh, 2002, you and I were talking about, you know what, Phil, do you ever think MMA will make it onto ESPN? And I bet you your answer, Phil, then was, I think it will. And you know who's going to usher in the ESPN on network television? Mario Batista and Corey Sandhagen. That is going to be the fight that gets onto ESPN. Hey, look, do you know who the first baseball game on ESPN was or the first football game or boxing match? Does it really matter who the first, you know, I thought you were going to bust out the answers to all of those right now. <laughs> no, I don't have them. I don't think anybody cares. I think it's it, – they kept saying how it was historical. I think Ariel was charving on how all these things are historical. It's not really historical. It's just a change, right? Like I you're, don't know. On, you're, on a, you're on a new channel that's paying you a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> that's right, yeah. They paid uh, $300 million a year for Mario Batista, who was a <laughs> – uh, a late replacement uh, just this week to uh, get in on this fight uh, to take on Corey Sandhagen. It was originally going to be John Lineker. So, uh, but Batista is a six and zero fighter uh, coming here into the UFC, and yeah, another quick fight. This one only went three thirty one, and Sandhagen started attacking the body. Batista was going after his lead leg, and then Sandhagen lands this flying knee that looked like. It was going to be uh, – the fight was going to be over. But Batista was able to somewhat recover, and he lifted and dumped Sandhagen, but in doing so, was caught in an inverted triangle. And this just began Sandhagen's procession of one submission after the next and finally got an armbar submitting Batista 331 of the first round. Yeah, the submission chain that uh, Sandhagen put together was very impressive. He was very aggressive throughout this fight. Uh, we didn't really get any understanding of where Bautista was at other than, I mean, he took this fight on short notice. Uh, so good on him. But I would like to see uh, Sandhagen against uh, a higher ranked opponent, somebody in that Lineker caliber, because the way that he was stringing the submission attempts together was very impressive. I enjoyed his speech afterwards because he was asking about, you know, facing a guy like um, Mario Batista, and he, he said it in such a smug way that he completely was not just putting this on. He's just said, you know, I'm just I'm on a different level than a lot of these guys. <laughs> it's great. I, I love that confidence that you can tell. It's not just a guy throwing out a line for the sake of it. Alonzo Menafield versus Vinicius Moreira. This was a light heavyweight bout. Uh, Men Menafield, one of many people on this card coming off of uh, Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. Um, and Menafield drops him with this right hand after catching the leg. And then Moreira clinched up against the fence. And 
Menefield got off the fence, dropped him with this right hand, and just finished him with strikes against the fence. 356 of the first round, and Menefield improves to 8 0. Yeah, Mojea didn't really have much in this fight. Uh, he clearly was not much of a striker. He was fairly tenacious in his takedown attempt, but wasn't able to secure it. But he was very novice on his feet, and it didn't take long for Metafield to catch him and drop him and finish the fight quickly. Yeah, I think given the division, there's always a bit more attention paid to prospects at light heavyweight. But yeah, certainly uh, still a long road ahead for an Alonzo Metafield, but eh, good performance. Uh, We will see what is next for him. Joanne Calderwood took on Ariane Lipsky in a flyweight bout. Uh, Calderwood, this first round, uh, a lot of people were remarking this might have been the best round of Calderwood's career. She was able to get a takedown on Lipsky and was just dominant on top position here and went for a number of chokes. Lipsky was able to defend. There was an arm triangle by Calderwood, but couldn't quite get it. And... Uh, definitely securing the first round. Into the second we go, a bit of a slower round, but Calderwood way ahead on strikes by the end. A lot of good uh, clinch work for her. And then in the third, Calderwood is landing with knees in the clinch, gets thrown down by Lipsky, and this looks to be a Lipsky round, but then Calderwood starts going for all these submissions near the end. She's threatening with submissions. Uh, I gave each round to Calderwood. I had the first a 10-8. How did you score this one? I had the exact same score. Uh, 10-8 in the first. Calderwood was really uh, impressive throughout the fight with how she was able to pretty much win in all the domains. Uh, You could really sort of tell that the experience played a huge factor in this fight because even uh, whenever Ariana Lipsky had moments, uh, Calderwood just didn't uh, panic and just stuck to her game plan and ultimately dominated this fight. Yeah, Calderwood, it just seems evident that Flyweight really agrees with her. And yeah, this was a great win for her. She should certainly be in that upper championship mix at 125 pounds uh, coming out of this. And our final uh, prelim bout, Donald Cerrone in his 30th UFC fight, which is remarkable given that that is in eight years he was able to rack up 30 fights in this promotion versus Alexander Hernandez, who had uh, talked up a great game coming into this. He's 2-0 and in the UFC coming off of wins over uh, Benil Darius and Olivier Aubin-Mercier. So some quality lightweights that he has wins over, but a big step up here taking on Donald Cerrone. And yeah, Hernandez had been very vocal throughout the week saying that Donald Cerrone is a jester and Alexander Hernandez is destined for uh, becoming a king in the UFC. Well, this was uh, quite the rude awakening for one Alexander Hernandez. In the first round, Hernandez starts landing with a right hand immediately. He's very aggressive. And then Cerrone takes him down, and he powers him down to the mat to keep him down. And Cerrone just starts landing with counters. He's landing with a knee to the body that sets up a right hand and just comes at him with this flurry, attacking with knee strikes in between as well. Into the second round we go. Cerrone continues with the knees and starts chopping away with leg kicks. He drops Hernandez with a head kick, and then he gets on top and just vicious ground and pound, gets the stoppage at 343 of the second round. I I didn't know how Donald Cerrone would look in this fight, 
but I certainly wasn't expecting this dominant of a performance from Donald Cerrone. I thought this was one of his best performance in years, Phil. I agree wholeheartedly. He, he At first, I was a little worried because Hernandez came out so aggressive and was landing and was throwing with such bad intentions. And Cerrone has a history of being a slow starter. Yes. So I was worried that he was just going to get caught so far behind the eight ball that he was going to get overwhelmed. But he was able to get a takedown early, and it, he didn't really secure it, but he just did enough to like create enough of a scramble, enough distance that he could find a rhythm. And then he landed a really big knee to the body that he in turn would land repeatedly throughout the fight. And that was a big turning point. He was able to slow Hernandez down and then pick him apart until he finally finished him in the second round. A a really great performance by Cerrone. Yeah, uh, an outstanding performance from Donald Cerrone. He noted that between the WEC and UFC, he has had 40 fights with this company. He improves to 35 and 11. And after the fight, he he mentioned his child and wanting to fight Conor McGregor. And this led to Conor McGregor going on Twitter, stating that after that fight, he's willing to fight Donald Cerrone. So I guess that's how fights get made. That it is now just signed, sealed, delivered, buy your tickets now. It's been made. Donald Cerrone, Conor McGregor. Well, if it's if that's the fight that I think they should do that fight, to be honest. I mean, if that's the fight that Conor wants to do, that then they're going to do that fight. I think it makes sense because it's a good fight. It's a winnable fight for Conor. It's a, it's one of the bigger names that he can draw on. It would generate a lot of interest just from a style perspective, even without the McGregor hype uh, machine behind it. So it's a, it's a good fight. The only thing that it, it's, it doesn't really do, at least for Conor, is it doesn't necessarily put him back in title contention because where does Cowboy really fit in the title picture? But of course, if Cowboy beats uh, McGregor, he can fight anybody. I would say Connor will. I, I think Connor, if he wants to have this fight, it's they could do this. I, I don't think it's going to be prohibitive for any future fight with Nurmagomedov. I think Connor. They'll put him in a fight tomorrow if if that's if that can be logically made and they can get both sides to agree. Um, I just think this is a fight that I, I think he'll do very well. It's as you mentioned, I think it's a fight that it, it's a good fight for Connor to take, and I don't think it's a slam dunk either that Connor wins this fight. But I feel that it's a you know it, it it's just two great personalities. I think the build up would be a lot of fun and. It it just seems like if you're not going to be going to Nurmagomedov right now, Nate Diaz is not an option. This this is hardly a, a bad backup plan at the moment. And yeah, with Donald Cerrone, it just seems that um, the welterweight experiment is over. And just a- after a lot of people had written him off, he had, here he has two wins in a row. And I was very impressed with this performance. I would say Donald Cerrone was among uh, the biggest highlights of this entire show. Absolutely. So that takes us into the main card, kicking off with the light heavyweight division, Carl Roberson, who has taken the spot of Jan Kudalaba against Glover Teixeira. And Glover Teixeira, another one where a lot of questions about him. He is now 39 years old. Uh, last win was against uh, Canadian Misha Serkinov, I guess Canadian by extension, and uh, only fought once in 2018. 
Robertson gets on top with these elbows to the head, and it looks like Teixeira is out, and this is going to be it. Teixeira, like a zombie, just gets back up, and he mounts Robertson, and he starts attacking him. Teixeira gets his own mount, and then he goes for the arm triangle. Robertson defends, and then he goes for it a second time. This time he gets it on, and they showed a great replay after of where he put the pressure and was able to get the tap. 321 of the first round, and Glover Teixeira, he said that he's not done yet, and he said, hey, ESPN, my academy is very close to your headquarters. I'll teach everyone jujitsu. What a what a wonderful man. Very uh, voluntary very, with his very time. nice offer. Yeah. So yeah, just when many had probably written off Glover Teixeira, he gets this win. I mean, it's against Carl Roberson, who was a last minute replacement. I don't know if this necessarily is going to uh, incite a big big resurrection for Glover Teixeira's career, but yeah, this was a fight that nearly seemed over for. Glover Teixeira and comes back to submit him. Yeah, it was an impressive comeback. He definitely looked out, uh, but managed to weather the storm. Sort of a theme of the night was experience coming through, and uh, this would be an example of that. It's probably going to be one of the performances that gets lost because there were so many great performances tonight, uh, but it definitely needs to be acknowledged, and he deserves uh, a fight against a ranked opponent now. Then we went to Paige Van Zandt and Rachel Ostovich, which was um, certainly a heavily promoted fight. And, of course, with all of the the background with Rachel Ostovich coming into this card, uh, did you have a strong feeling one way or another, Phil, about uh, the entire handling of all of this with Rachel Ostovich, Greg Hardy? Um, I thought it was going to be a bigger issue this week among a lot of media outlets in New York. And I think within MMA media, it certainly was. But... I don't think it really penetrated beyond kind of mixed martial arts in terms of the coverage of this event going in. I agree. There really was no coverage of the event outside of the MMA world. And so the story about, uh, you know, the connection between the uh, Hardy being accused of domestic abuse and Ostevich, uh being a victim of it was only raised by the MMA media. And, uh, so, I mean, in terms of how the UFC handled it, they didn't really do anything. I mean, it wasn't mentioned on the broadcast whatsoever. Of course not. So, uh, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to say about how it was handled. It probably shouldn't have happened to begin with, especially with the way that the Greg Hardy fight ended. But um, I don't think anybody's going to really look back on it and uh, cry too hard about it, I suppose. I would say that the the part of the show that it was most glaring was when Rachel Ostevich was coming out and they were they were talking about her family being in her corner, all that she's overcome, and anyone that's listening to this knows what is to come later on this show. And when that came later in the show, again, like they were not bringing that up, uh, and, and that's kind of I can't expect it to be handled much differently when the UFC is controlling the broadcast. But that's one of the interesting things that had this been an ESPN broadcast, if this had been independent of the UFC, uh, I I think it would have been handled much differently on on the broadcast. Well, um, to its credit, uh, ESPN has hired the premier journalist in uh, mixed martial arts and he has not shied away from talking about this issue and I'm sure he's talking about it on whatever post 
fight shows he's currently hosting. Uh, I'm talking no, I, about Ariel I, I don't Helwani, doubt ESPN so. is going to cut. ESPN will cover this. I'm just saying in the body of the show, U- USC controls the production, and you know that's that's the uh, the leeway they've been given sure, to control sure. the the broadcast. Like they don't have this is not like HBO that HBO is producing the broadcast and they will have their broadcast team. I mean, this is a UFC team. No, I, I agree. But uh, I guess where that differs from the previous deal is that even in the shoulder programming that was on uh, Fox, the Fox shows were really just sort of towing the party line of the UFC, if that's, if that's a proper way to put it. Whereas I feel on ESPN, because there's so many premier journalists on that station as a whole, they're going to actually be a little bit more journalistic than uh, – the previous television partners have been. And uh, I think this is going to be an interesting story as the uh, relationship between the, between ESPN and the UFC continues into the new year and going forward. Absolutely. So the fight begins and man, I, I thought Paige Van Zandt um, should have been heavily favored going into this fight. Uh, So I was very surprised by the outcome of the first round where it was all about Rachel Ostevich and her wrestling. She took Van Zant down three separate times. On the first, there was no action happening as Ostevich was in her guard, so they were stood up. So Ostevich took her right back down. Uh, it wasn't until the end that Van Zant was able to roll out and was searching for a, a knee bar of some sort. I didn't think she was near anything there. And yeah, a clear Ostevich first round. Uh, did that surprise you at all, uh, Phil? Um. It surprised me in the sense that how relentless she was with the grappling. Like the second that they were separated, she was right back on it and was successful immediately. There was a bunch of great grappling exchanges in this first round. It was really entertaining. They kept switching between submissions and positions, and that continued into the second round. Uh, it It was a really exciting round. I was really impressed, actually, with both of them. Yeah, I, I thought Rachel Osovich very impressive uh, compared to uh, where we had seen her in prior fights. So in the second round, Ostevich again takes her down and goes for her back, but ends up slipping off. And Van Zant immediately takes the back of Ostevich. It was just seamless and is able to mount Ostevich and starts raining down strikes. And Van Zant is really high on her shoulders. And it looks like Ostevich is just going to slip out and send Van Zant off her back. But Van Zant still has control of the left arm, puts her weight down on it, and submits Ostevich, who just seems heartbroken here that she was caught here with her arm. And the finish comes at 1 minute, 50 seconds of the second round. Paige Van Zant gets her first win in over two years, uh, going back to August of 2016 in the UFC women's flyweight division. So, um, yeah, Van Zandt, uh, I thought, struggled in the first round, but pulls out the submission in the second. Yeah, she was able to stay calm in bad positions, and uh, we've seen her in a lot of bad positions in her career. So I think her experience helped her out a lot in this fight, and definitely good for her to get back on the winning track. Could you see... Paige Van Zant, um, you know, she mentioned afterwards she wants to fight next month in Phoenix. I don't know if that quick of a turnaround is going to happen, but I-, I think that there's a pretty big discrepancy between where Paige Van Zant is and where Joanne Calderwood is in this division in terms of you know, who you're looking at. And 
even a potential matchup between those two is is that a scenario you could see, or is Joanne Calderwood uh, further ahead that she could be fighting for a title next? Uh, I don't like the idea of those two fighting each other. I think Paige Van Zant probably could use a couple of other wins to build herself. Jo- I like the idea of uh, Joanne Calderwood versus Jessica I. Um, that seems like a good matchup. The reality is I don't see anybody challenging for this title in this division. There's just such a gap between number one and number two and then number two and everybody else. And so I just it's just really hard for me to imagine anybody stepping into a title fight in that division. It's going to be tough. You have a pretty dominant champion in uh, Valentina Shevchenko. Joseph Benavidez, Dustin Ortiz. This was a rematch from November of 2014 that Benavidez won by decision. This time around, he won again by decision. Um, I thought this was a really entertaining fight. Um, Maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I thought the grappling in this was very, very high end. Uh, I had Benavidez winning the first and the third rounds with Ortiz getting the second round. And yeah, the difference was just, uh, I think Benavidez was just a superior grappler. He was able to maintain back control and just locking Ortiz away that I think just kind of negated a lot of his tools throughout. And Joseph Benavidez has now won seven of eight. He got the unanimous decision victory. All three judges scoring it 29-28. Yeah, I have. Had the same assessment. The grappling exchanges were amazing. It was a relentless pace. They were constantly switching positions. It was very close going into the third round. And then in the third round, Benavidez was finally able to really secure uh, some significant back control. And that, I feel, was the difference in the fight. Uh, really exciting technical fight, uh, action throughout. Um, yeah. Joseph Benavidez is someone that I'm sure was was rooting for Henry Cejudo in the main event. I don't know if this guy is just I, I don't I don't know if they're just gonna eventually give this guy another title fight. You would think that with Henry Cejudo as champion, that opens the door for him. But I don't know. I just feel they're just gonna keep throwing this guy fights. He's gonna keep accepting them, he's gonna keep winning, and it's just gonna go on forever. Well, I mean, that's if the flyweight division continues. Um, Like, is he really is if I mean, that's a big if we really don't know what the future of the flyweight division is going to be. And if there isn't a flyweight division, is he able to fight at 135? I know he has in the past, but that seems like a pretty tall order in uh, the modern bantamweight division in the UFC. So. The whole future of the division, the future for Benavides, Ortiz, and other UFC flyweights is just in limbo right now. Yeah, I think that as many people were just looking at, well, Henry Cejudo wins, the flyweight division is saved. I think that these are the kind of fights you need to be looking at. It's that, okay, Henry Cejudo wins tonight. Is Henry Cejudo headlining a pay-per-view against Juicy Formiga, against Joseph Benavides, against... You know, any of these flyweights, like do any of those names, like you and I are going to watch these fights, but how many others are going to be watching these fights? And I think that's what they're looking at. It's regardless of your champion, do we have marketable challengers? Well, I yes, you need marketable challengers, but you don't have to be putting Cejudo on 
uh, pay-per-view. He's a star on ESPN Plus now. And you have 40-some ESPN Plus events to fill. So he can uh, continue to appear on ESPN fighting these uh, other flyweights. And you can do your best to build them up the same way you did your best to build them up against Mighty Mouse during his dominant run. Um, I mean, that's one option. Or... Maybe they're going to send Cejudo to bantamweight and see what happens then. It's 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 just hard to evaluate what the future could be when we don't really know what the divisions are going to be going forward. Yeah, it's it's difficult. If you're in the position of a Henry Cejudo, you know that the biggest money available to you as a champion is on pay-per-view. But you need to have the proper opponents that are going to bring you that. And for Henry Cejudo, he's probably looking at a higher division that there's way more interesting fights for me at bantamweight than there are flyweight at the moment. So, well, I mean, he's knocked out the bantamweight champion. So that to me might even like kind of ex- accentuate this, this whole debate is that if he's going up to bantamweight, I mean, I, I don't know if the, the fate of the flyweights was determined tonight or not. I, I feel like the fate was determined long before tonight. I I tend to believe you're right. Next up, Gregor Gillespie was in action, taking on Yancy Medeiros. And what a fight this was. Uh, Gregor Gillespie has uh, quietly gone 5-0 and in the UFC. And taking on Yancy Medeiros here, this was a domination from start to finish. Gillespie is just a relentless wrestler, just suffocating style. He was able to hold Medeiros up against a cage and take him down. Fans were getting relentless by the end of the first round, which featured Gillespie getting five uh, uh, five takedowns out of ten attempts. And then in the second, it was more than just control and wrestling. He started laying waste to Yancey Medeiros. He got him down. He mounted him. And then with his back mounted, he starts annihilating Yancey Medeiros with ground and pound, getting the stoppage with one second left in the second round. So Gregor Gillespie wins by TKO, improves to 13-0. and And the most amazing stat afterwards is that he absorbed one strike in this entire fight. It was a very dominant, very impressive performance. Uh, Gillespie came out looking for the takedown, looking to engage in grappling right away, was successful, and pretty much just had his way of controlling Medeiros throughout the round. Medeiros did a good job of continuing to scramble through positions and always able to get to his feet. But Gillespie never separated from him and never stopped to pursue the takedown. And it was amusing because in between rounds, Daniel Cormier suggested that even though Medeiros wasn't being successful at getting up and separating, because he was constantly creating scrambles, maybe that was wearing on Gillespie. Well, it was not wearing on Gillespie because in the second round, he turned it up to another gear where he just crushed Medeiros and flattened him out repeatedly. Tons of shots. Um, really impressive uh, performance by uh, Gregor Gillespie. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see what level of lightweight he gets next because I, I, I was pretty high on Gregor Gillespie prior to this. And this was a dominant performance. I think that this has to draw him uh, a pretty sizable upgrade in opponent his next time out. 
Yeah, for sure. I think he's. This was at welterweight, though, was it not? This was. Uh... No, they're lightweights. Oh, okay. Then okay, yes. All right, my mistake then. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, then there's a whole slew of people that he could go against. Uh, either way, whether it's lightweight or welterweight, uh, this is an exciting prospect. And uh, yeah, I, I really look forward to seeing uh, who he goes up against next. It was an amazing performance. So then we go to the fight that uh, received a lot of attention uh, in the buildup to this. Greg Hardy up against Alan Crowder uh, in the, the heavyweight division. Greg Hardy comes out and is just booed by this entire arena. Was this the uh, response you were expecting, Phil, for Greg Hardy? Yeah, it was, it pretty much was. Yeah, I mean, I, like, it, like who's gonna go out there and cheer for him? You know? Uh, well, some people that made this fight. Well, I mean, you know, you need a villain, right? Like, how many how many great events have been because of uh, an amazing villain? I mean, Ric Flair, his entire career was made on being the villain, right? Yeah, I guess different attributes that get you to that characterization. I guess. Uh, I I guess, you know, there were people turned off by this being placed in the co-feature. And, you know, I was I was kind of like looking at, at this and it's like you look at the the level of competition this guy has faced and being in the co-feature. Uh, that said, everyone knew going into this, Greg Hardy was going to be among the biggest stars on this show that was going to get the most attention. Now, the counter-argument to that is, well, why is this guy getting that attention? Is it because of his football background or is it because of his domestic violence past? And, I mean, that's – the UFC, they have signed this guy and they are promoting this guy all the way. They are not throwing this guy on undercards. They are putting him in a prominent position. And it's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And And I think tonight you can see that this is a very green heavyweight. He has – you know, destroyed low-level competition. And here in a, a step up in that competition, I, I think you can see how rough around the edges this guy is. And he's kind of in, I wouldn't say the deep end of the heavyweight division, but even tonight, like, this guy, he certainly showed signs of struggling. Oh, definitely. He was struggling immensely in this fight. He was, he was not – it was definitely – the pendulum was not swinging in his direction as this fight was progressing. And then, uh, as many have suggested, uh, the disqualification at the end could have been a way to look for an exit from this fight. Uh, it was not going his way. And it, he maybe looked for a way out. The first round began, and Hardy is tagging him. He's hitting him with some big shots. Uh, Crowder then takes the leg and trips him, putting him onto his back. And he moves to side control, had this sloppy guillotine attempt, and Hardy gets out of that and lands a big right hand at the end of the round. Uh, I thought Hardy did win the first round with his striking. Into the second we go, Crowder starts yelling at him, and the crowd's getting behind this. They're loving this. He's trying to egg on Hardy, and Crowder attacks, and he's uh, ends up eating an elbow. And Crowder cannot take him down when he shoots. And then Crowder is down on one knee. It is clear as day this guy is on his knee. And Hardy just takes a look and just nails him with this knee to the head. And you know this fight is over. 
the uh, referee, Dan Mergliata, is stating, if he can't continue, I am disqualifying him. He is not wavering when it comes to intent. Uh, and that is what happens here. Alan Crowder could not continue, and he wins by disqualification, 228 of the second round. I thought this was kind of the low point of the night, and I I don't think Greg Hardy is UFC ready if this is the kind of struggle he's having against Alan Crowder, and he's got a lot of problems against heavyweights above this level. But uh, did you come out with any uh, kind of different impression of Greg Hardy? Uh, no, uh, the... It- it was not. This is one of the low points of many, many events that I can recall. It, it was a really awful finish, and especially, especially considering all of the history behind this fighter and all of the negativity surrounding him, it, it was probably the worst possible ending for this fight. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's definitely not UFC ready. He was having trouble in this fight. He was tired. I did not give him the first round, even though he landed uh, the more significant strikes in the kind of the first 30 seconds of the fight. Then by the end of it, you could tell he was gassed. He went mm-hmm. back to his stool and he did not look, uh, you know, confident at all. Now, he was able to come out uh, into the second and sort of gain his composure and go after it again without um going crazy but as i said the fight was clearly turning against him as uh cowder was yelling at him and tagging him quite a bit he got hit with some big shots himself um he did defend uh takedowns well um but he is very green and i i don't think that there's going to be much appetite to see him in the ufc again anytime soon do you, do you think he doesn't get a, a second fight in the UFC after this? I I just don't see what the upside is for the UFC. Like how much interest was driven by his presence on this card? I just and, and also positive interest. Like yes, this guy got coverage this week, but I'm having a hard time imagining that a casual fan that's aware of the UFC saw Greg Hardy is fighting, knowing this guy's history, and that was the impetus to sign up for ESPN+. Plus. Well, I, I, I can see I, a lot of people like outright not going out of their way to buy this service because of him. And I, I just – I don't know it, what the, the positive value is to this guy because I can certainly see the negative value. Well, I don't think the, 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 the UFC fan is going to buy – participate in this event regardless because they're a UFC fan and there's lots of people who they're fans of on this card. I think the theory is that there is way more NFL fans than there are MMA fans and maybe they can draw some in out of curiosity because he was an NFL star in uh, his previous career. But I just didn't see that in existence in the media, at least the online media or the sports media that I saw. And so I just don't see what they get out of it at all. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's going to be a really uh, bumpy ride um, for Greg Hardy. And we we will see. I didn't think this was a. Yeah, this is definitely the low point of the night. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, one of the lower points of recent memory, maybe the worst fight of 2019. We have our early contender uh, from this uh, this past Saturday's card. 
Then we go to the main event. Henry Cejudo versus TJ, TJ Dillashaw for the UFC flyweight title. First of all, Phil, I know you follow this on a, a daily basis. What did you think of some of those photos of TJ Dillashaw's weight cut? Uh, yeah, the ESPN photos. So this is a little bit of what I was talking about earlier and how the coverage that the ESPN has brought to the UFC for this week has definitely been an enhancement. They did some great in-depth photojournalism on his whole weight cutting process. And I, I, I thought it was insightful. Um, I thought it looked like he handled it the best he could. It seemed as scientific and planned out as that possibly could be. Um, yeah, I don't know much more else to say about it. He made weight. He didn't look great on the scale, but he made weight with, you know, several points to spare. Yeah. Well, I, I think we may have had more analysis of the, the weight cut than we will the fight. I won't lie. I was looking forward to like a classic fight. I thought that these two were going to engage in. So when the fight begins, and Cejudo clips him immediately. He lands this this kick that didn't look like it rocked him, but it definitely connected on the chin. And then Cejudo followed with a right hand that I think hit him like right behind the ear. And Dillashaw is dazed, and he gets swarmed with strikes. Cejudo just went from 0 to 100 here. He just keeps landing and landing, and referee Kevin McDonald steps in and stops the fight in 32 seconds. Henry Cejudo wins. It's, you know, uh, an incredible performance from Henry Cejudo. TJ Dillashaw was furious over this stoppage. Did you have a problem with the decision to stop the fight uh, when they did? I don't have a problem with them stopping the fight when they did. You could you could understand it. He had just taken like, I don't know, 15 consecutive shots. He'd stumbled around. He'd kind of been dropped twice. I could have seen them, you know, letting it go a little bit longer, but not much longer. But if I could see it going on a little bit longer, that's sort of all you kind of need. Uh, but I didn't really have a problem with the stoppage. Uh, he was, he was, he looked in trouble. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I thought that it was, um, he was taking a lot of strikes and I, I didn't see him improving his position at, the kind of um, rate that you would give him the benefit of the doubt like this seemed to be um, he was only preventing the inevitable at this point. So Henry Cejudo wins. Um, I I was really looking forward to seeing like a long drawn out fight between these two. And I guess, is there any silver lining that because of the nature of this stoppage being so early that there is that intrigue now to see this fight take place at bantamweight? Is that a fight you want to see next? Uh, I, I guess I want to see it, uh, because, or are there better challengers at, at bantamweight that you'd rather see first before they go to this for Cejudo or for Dillashaw? I, I mean, it makes sense for Cejudo to fight Dillashaw again, because he just beat him if he's going to stay at bantamweight. Uh, but then there's a long queue of good contenders at bantamweight as well, who deserve shots. So it's a kind of uh, tough situation for the UFC to be in. Ideally, Cejudo stays at flyweight and fights those guys. But as we've already discussed, 
that division might not be there. So if Cejudo is going to go up, I guess the only the fight that makes the most sense is the bantamweight title fight. You know, if you are the UFC and you want the flyweight division to be shelved, you have the incentive now to push Henry Cejudo to go to bantamweight for an immediate title fight and uh, and incentivize him to to do so and that's kind of it for the flyweights uh i can certainly see that scenario playing out i just and if you're henry cejudo and you're looking at making the most money possible it's going to be a bantamweight and not flyweight i mean that's just the reality of where things are from a economic standpoint and i don't want to see the flyweight division disappear but just looking at the state of things um you know, and the fact that they won't outright state that any of these rumors are false, uh, it lends me to believe that the days are numbered for this division. I agree. Uh, there really is. There's no evidence to give us a feeling that they're going to keep it around. So all evidence leads to them cutting it. And then if they're going to cut it, then what happens to Cejudo, who's really kind of the only flyweight that people really are invested in now what happens to him he goes to bantamweight and he just beat the bantamweight champion so shouldn't he be the bantamweight champion it's uh yeah what did you think was going to happen in this main event going in i definitely thought it was going to be competitive uh i don't know if i thought it was going to be an all-time classic because i thought that there was a chance they would be very, so calculated. They'd be both maybe worried that like one little mistake the other could capitalize on. And that doesn't mean that it would be a boring fight. But I, I, I thought we were going to see a highly technical fight. I did not expect for it to be over so quickly uh, one way or the other. And uh, Henry Cejudo is really, really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I – it was a very close fight with uh, Demetrius Johnson. I did think Cejudo won that fight, but I, 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 I lean towards Dillashaw in this fight. Even coming down in the weight, I just I wasn't sold on Cejudo to the degree I think most are now. That this is a guy that I, I think I have that performance in my head of the first Demetrius Johnson fight of, and just seeing that this guy would would struggle against the the elite level guys, but. After wins over Johnson and Dillashaw, this guy has catapulted himself now into uh, another level as one of the elite fighters in this promotion, in this industry. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how much of uh, his interview you listened to with Joe Rogan uh, from a few months ago, but it was very fascinating to hear him. And he had his trainer and not only his trainer, but sort of uh, the person who was in charge of the company that's running his sort of just in to in total training nutrition plan they they have a very scientific approach to how he trains and and frankly how he lives his life to get optimal performance on fight night and it was incredibly in depth and really interesting and uh, he's almost like a science experiment at this point and now he's won a gold medal uh a UFC championship and He's who's to say he's not going to add a second UFC championship to that soon. And once upon a time, the WWE had interest in this guy. Oh, really? I yes. did not know that. He went the he went the MMA direction. What well, turns out 
He's made the right choice. Well for him. Yeah. <laughs> now now he, he can go to the he can you can go to the WWE at any time. This raises his WWE value. What was your fight of the night? Uh my fight of the night would probably be who uh even though it was wasn't close, I'd have to go with Alex Hernandez and Donald Cerrone. It was just a really exciting fight and and every it, it I mean uh, Hernandez came out guns blazing and Cerrone, like the output in the first round was really high. Uh, the Ortiz versus Benavidez fight was, uh, really good and highly technical, but the Cerrone fight just had, it just felt like more was riding on that fight. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I really like the Jeff Neal Bilal Muhammad fight early on as well. Um, yeah, Cerrone and Hernandez, I just thought, um, at the very least, um, I think Cerrone. We we haven't seen the the bonuses haven't been released yet, so I I don't know who has received them. I would think that Cerrone should be in line for one of them. Maybe him and Cejudo will be taking away those performance bonuses. I mean, look, Paige Van Zant had a tremendous submission in this fight. Um, Teixeira had a great submission. Y- yeah, I mean, t- uh, I mean, there was it was a night full of really good performances. Luckily, uh, no real, not too many stinkers uh, tonight. So, uh, but yeah, Cerrone, very impressed by his performance tonight. Well, that is going to wrap up the show. I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, overall, you felt a, a successful a debut card on this historic launch on ESPN Plus, Phil. Yeah, it was an exciting card. You had great fights. You had uh, drama. And uh, you have now you have Henry Cejudo, who is uh, maybe a star in the making. We'll see. The, they tried to build a star at Flyweight with Demetrius Johnson. That didn't quite work out. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up for us. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will be back uh, next month when we have the UFC 234 pay-per-view, which is headlined by Robert Whitaker, Kelvin Gastelum, as well as Israel Adesanya taking on Anderson Silva. That is going to be taking place from Melbourne, Australia. So you can circle the date on that one. Phil, thank you, as always, for joining me. It's always great doing these with you. Thank you, John. All right, and that's it for us. Uh, Wei Ting and I will be back Monday night with Rewind to Raw. And in the meantime, you can head over to postwrestling.com for all the latest news. That's it. Good night.